Well, hey, good morning, Clear Lake. My name is Megan. I'm one of the directors here. And just on behalf of the whole staff and all of our congregation, if you're visiting, we want to say welcome. If this is your home church, welcome back. Um, we have experienced just an incredible and beautiful week and weekend this past week here in Clear Lake. Um, as Scott mentioned earlier, Zion hosted a community-wide VBS, which went from Monday through Friday, and it was a blast. Kids had fun. They learned all about the victory that they have in Jesus. And we had so many volunteers, so many parents that came. Kids were excited, and I think left um, just excited to share their faith. It all culminated last night um, with a concert from Go Fish and Awake in the Dust and Ren Collective. And man, that fiddle player... He got everyone, I think, up and on their feet. But this morning, we're going to keep on in the spirit of worship, and we're going to dive into the Bible this morning. We're going to learn about God's provision. And I have to tell you, I picked this topic a few weeks ago when Jason told me that he was going to be gone this morning. And I think for those last few weeks, God has like really been working on this in my own life, as if to say, when you get up on that stage, you had better know what you're talking about, and you better be able to share from your own experiences the ways that I'm going to and have been providing for you. So here we go. We're going to dive right in. We've been in the middle of a sermon series called You've Already Got It, where we've been talking about the blessings that God gives to his children who believe and who call Jesus their Lord. And it's these things that we feel like we have to fight for sometimes, but really the fight that we need to have is to stay in the blessing that we've been given. And so as we begin today's topic of provision, I have just a funny story that maybe probably some of you can relate to. I was driving one day to church and I heard a big pop sound and I was like, well, that's probably not good. But I kept driving, nothing happened, all seemed fine. And 20 seconds later, my low tire light came on and I thought, oh no, something has found its way into my tire and I'm driving on the highway. And I, I started praying immediately and I was like, oh God, oh please, I just wanna make it to Glenn's tire. Please, Lord, just help me get there. And I kept going and I never felt the wobble. I was like, oh Lord, please, please, I look too good today. I can't be stranded on the side of the road. Oh, and then I, more panic started ensuing, and I was like, Lord, please just get me there in one piece. I, I actually don't even think I remember how to change a tire. I just need to get there. Please, Lord, come through. And he did. I pull into Glenn's tire. I get there, and I think this has to be the, literally the one place in town that people are begging God just to get to. Like, be honest, how many of you on your drive today were like, please, Lord, just help me get to the park just close enough that I can see the benches and I can take it from there? Like, no one does that. It's just Glenn's tire. So I, open, I get out of my car and I look and I see my tire go completely flat in a matter of like three seconds. And I was like, whew, I made it. All right, so I open the door to Glenn's tire and I see Brad. And Brad is incredible. He knows my name. I, it's not like I'm a frequent flyer of Glenn's Tire, but I, every time it's like, oh, hey, Megan. I'm like, well, hello. Yes, it is nice to see you in these awful, this awful morning that I'm having. And I just know, though, that when I pull in there, I'm in good hands. And so I explained to Brad what happened, ran over something. I made it here, though, so this is great. And they quickly got my car in the shop, and he quickly came out to tell me that my tire was absolutely shot, just completely gone, lucky that I even made it there. And my first thought was, wow, 
only God. Like, only God could have kept my tire filled with enough air that I wouldn't have to be stranded on the side of the road. And you can chalk it up to coincidence if you want, but I'm sure many of you have had those only God moments, big or small, like me escaping the wretched thralls of the highway and being there on a hot summer day and having to flag down someone to please help this poor damsel in distress is kind of a small example. But maybe you've been in a car accident where you should have died, and yet only God could have stepped in to spare your life. Or maybe you were diagnosed with cancer and you went in only to find that it was gone. Only God. Maybe you've been short on money and you prayed for provision and a week later the exact amount that you needed showed up. Only God. And while those moments are incredible, what about the ones that we pray for God to show up and it seems like he really doesn't even notice or honestly even care? Or why does life always seem to go well for so-and-so, but never for me? Where, why does it seem like some of us have those moments where only God could have let us down that much? My husband and I struggled with infertility for about three years, and during those years, I can't tell you how many times I begged God just for, like, answers. Or, like, why and wondering, God, are you even looking at me? Are you paying attention? Do you know that I'm hurting? And so I get those moments, too, where you wonder, only God, where are you? So this morning, we're going to dive into the topic of provision. And it's the kind of provision that really can only come from God, because he is our perfect sustainer. And God's provision is one of the major themes of the entire Bible. It's literally found in almost every story. Because it's God trying to show us that we are a people in need. But the thing that we need the most more than anything, is Jesus. And that's what the entire Bible, all of Scripture, is pointing to and revealing, is that we are in need of Jesus. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand. We are going to pray, and I'm going to ask that you repeat this prayer after me if you'd like to. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in worship. We acknowledge that every good gift comes from your hand. We thank you for the kingdom wins this past week. We thank you for the beauty of the earth, for friends and family, for our food and our homes, for our work and your church. Most of all, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Speak to my heart this morning. Reveal to me all the ways that you are providing. Amen. Now, if you continue to stand this morning in honor of National Paperback Book Day, I have asked one of Clear Lake's most famous authors, seemed fitting, to come read our scriptures this morning. So, Miss Rachel, not the Miss Rachel your preschoolers love, but Clear Lake's famous Miss Rachel, she's going to take it away. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, my name is Rachel Longus, and I have been a member of Zion for about nine years now. Um, I grew up in Missouri Synod Lutheran, so I praise Jesus sitting quietly on the corner, not standing on the stage. Uh, so this is out of my real life, so thank you for that. We will read Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Thank you, Rachel. You guys can be seated. We're going to spend quite a while in the Bible today, uh, specifically in 1 Kings. So if you'd like to follow along, you can do so in the Zion Clear Lake app or in the Bible app, or if you're old school, the actual Bible itself. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 3 with, um, we're going to learn about Solomon. But 1 Kings is in the Old Testament, and it was written to confront a bunch of rebellious Israelites. It starts with King David. This is the David that killed Goliath. It starts with King David passing the throne to his son Solomon. And Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. He's the one that wrote the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs. He's most known for having great wisdom. But if there's something that we're going to learn from Solomon today, it's that our spiritual life is actually a marathon, not a sprint. And that just because we start off well doesn't mean that we always finish well. So when Solomon began his rule over Israel, things started off really good. And he was known, once again, for having wisdom. And it started like this. God was so impressed with Solomon that he said, he appeared to him in a dream and he said, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want. He was so pleased with him. He said, I want to bless you, Solomon. What would you like? What do you want? And Solomon replies that he would like discernment. He would like to be able to tell right from wrong. And God was so pleased with this answer because how many of us would actually ask for discernment? If we could ask for anything, is that at the top of our list? Usually not. But God was so impressed that he said, you know what, Solomon, I'm going to give you the discernment. You're going to be able to tell right from wrong. And not only that, I'm going to bless you with both wealth and honor. And it says in verse 14 that the Lord said, And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So we read on in chapter 4 that Solomon had daily provisions given to him. It says the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. He had governors who supplied provisions, and all who came to the king's table were well fed. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. And God was providing because Solomon was being obedient. Israel was at the peak of her success right now. 
Solomon was obedient and therefore God was blessing Solomon but his entire kingdom. So Solomon also built a temple that was dedicated to God and once again God appeared to Solomon in chapter 9 verse 4 and he's kind of reminding Solomon of what he had promised earlier. So he appears to him again and he says, as for you, if you walk before me with faithfulness and integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I have commanded and observe all my decrees and laws, I will establish a royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given, and you go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them, and I will reject this temple that I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble, and all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And the people will answer, well, because they've forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and they've embraced other gods, and they worship and serve them. That is why the Lord brought disaster on them. So God was warning Solomon, if you obey me, I will keep my promise to you. But if you turn away from me, I will turn away from you. We read on in chapter 11 what the downfall of Solomon was. Women. He loved many foreign women besides his wife. And there were two main reasons that Solomon had a lot of wives. One, yes, he liked women. But number two, these were political relationships. He married um, other kings and other leaders' daughters who were wealthy in an effort to build his own empire. He started to forget and trust that God was going to build it. He felt he needed to do that himself. And so he wanted to trust his own political alliances, not the alliances that God was setting him up for. He was warned to stay away from these women as well. He was warned that if he married them, if he um, had a relationship with them, that they would turn his heart towards other gods. And that's actually exactly what happened. Solomon turned his heart away from God and he started following these false gods. And in turn, God kept his promise and he turned away from Israel. And so the Israelites now found themselves in the midst of exile. And this is where many of you might think, why would a loving God turn from his people? But it's actually because of God's love that he did so. God always gives his people a choice. And when our choice is not God, it would actually be unloving of God to force himself on us. God saw that Solomon no longer wanted him. So he gave him what he wanted, a life without God. Time goes on in our story, and more kings are rising and coming into power. Most of them are really terrible. There's a few good ones that try to get the country to turn back to the one true God, but as time goes on, the land is just becoming more and more and more corrupt, and things are getting pretty bad. 
the bad kings are far outweighing the good. And now the generations that have grown up in Israel really no longer even remember what it used to be like. They've grown up in exile and that's all they know. And so they start complaining and they start wondering why the God of Israel, supposedly the God of Israel, has abandoned them, their own, his own people. They have no idea that the God who was promised to be with them had left them because of sin and bad choices. So a few years ago, I was in a grocery store in Peru with my friend Bethany, and I don't really remember the exact circumstances, but we were with her girls, and one of them had kind of gotten into some trouble. And so Bethany was trying to correct her, and she said this phrase that has stuck with me, and I still use it today with Gigi, and she said, choose to sin, choose to suffer. She said, girls, I want you to think about what that means, and when you think you know, I will be ready to talk to you, but not until you figure out what choose to sin, choose to suffer means. And the girls thought about it for a while, and when they were ready with their answer, they said, okay, mom, we're ready to tell you what it means. And they nailed it on the head. They said if they chose to do something wrong, that they would also be choosing the consequence. Disobedience was not going to lead to the blessing that they were hoping for. And this might have been a good lesson for kids, but it doesn't change once we leave adolescence. If we choose to lie, we are choosing broken trust. If we choose drunkenness, we're choosing a hangover the next day. If we choose to slander, we're choosing a bad reputation. Well, the Israelites chose to neglect God and his warning, and therefore they chose exile. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. God allows consequences in our life because it's actually the consequences that are meant to turn our lives around. They're meant to point us back to God and show the need for us to be in that right relationship. And back into our story in 1 Kings, as kings and more kings are coming, things are just getting worse and worse, it all kind of culminates when a man named Ahab takes the throne. It actually says that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. King Ahab married a girl named Jezebel, and she introduced him to the god of Baal. And it's actually the worship of Baal that is like really what makes God angry. And you want to know why God was so angry? Let me tell you a little bit about Baal. Baal means Lord of the Covenant. He was the god of fertility. He made the earth produce crops and the people produce offspring. He was supposed to represent life and all life came from him. Baal is a counterfeit version of the one true God. Supposedly, I read, at one time, Baal was actually um, killed and raised from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Does that remind you of Jesus? That's the Baal counterfeit. In the Bible, God often refers to Israel as being his bride. And in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as the bride of Christ. And this is done to explain that covenant relationship. But when the Israelites decided to turn from God and start worshiping Baal, they were actually breaking that covenant. It meant spiritually divorcing God and instead marrying Baal. And Baal, being the fertility god, required worship that was very sensual. It was filled with perversion, with homosexuality, with immorality, and sexual promiscuity. Baal went after children, and child sacrifice was kind of a part of his deal. 
So when God's people began worshiping Baal, God became angry. And do you blame him? Do you blame God even for being angry at his people today? Because we may not actually worship a God named Baal, but we break covenants through divorce. Our culture has been infiltrated with sexual promiscuity to the point that a lot of us just look at it and say, mm, it's not that bad. And our nation practices child sacrifice all the time. Years ago when I was in Haiti, I learned a disgusting fact that haunts me to this day. One of the reasons that it's so hard to adopt children from Haiti is because the Haitian government can get more money from the children selling them on the black market than they can adopting them to actual loving families. And if you're like me, you may ask the question, who would buy children off the black market? And then I found out that the biggest buyers were those in New York. It's happening in our own country. Children are sold for sex and their body parts like they mean nothing. And this is the stuff that makes God angry. It is in these moments when we choose to enter into these practices that we also choose to disobey God, and therefore we do choose to suffer. Our disobedience has led us to drought and famine, a world where we don't see God's provision. We smear the covenant we made through the sacrifice of Jesus, and we wonder why we suffer. We wonder, where is God? But we can turn back to our story in 1 Kings for that glimpse of hope when we feel like, God, where are you in this world? We go back to 1 Kings. It says, God was so angry that he decided to send a prophet. Now, prophets show up when things have gotten really bad. Prophets speak on behalf of God. Their words are meant to call Israel to live faithfully to the covenant. Prophets of the Old Testament and today, their words are meant to bring the people back into obedience with God, back to a right life. Because where there's obedience, there's provision. In chapter 17, we're introduced to the prophet Elijah. And in, in his obedience to God, he gives a prophetic word to King Ahab, the one who uh, worshipped the counterfeit God. And he says to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither rain nor dew the next few years except at my word. God was so mad at his people that he sent Elijah to tell them that he's no longer going to provide. There's going to be a famine in the land, and yet he's going to just take care of Elijah. Elijah was so close to God that he could hear the things that God was asking him to do. God was Elijah's only source of provision. God tells him, I'm going to bring a famine on the land, but you, you need to leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook I have directed, and I will direct the ravens to supply you with food there. So God asked Elijah to go and hide, to be alone. Elijah had to physically leave the place that he was at to go receive this provision from the Lord. He would not have received it had he stayed where he was. He would have experienced the drought with the rest of the people. But he was close to God, and he did not even question this. He just got up and went to the place. He trusted God as his source to provide. So we can learn that our job, our bank, our family, those are not our source. Those are just resources. They are mechanisms that God will use and does use to provide for us, but they are not our main source. 
our main source is God. It says, while Elijah was in the ravine, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And in the humorous words of Pastor Tony Evans, the ravens simply brought him a sandwich. You got your bread, you got your meat, and a delicious sandwich. Elijah probably ate the first sandwich ever. So he enjoyed a sandwich being delivered to him twice a day by birds. God asked Elijah to go, Elijah obeyed, and God provided. And we also learn just from this tiny little snippet of a story so far that God uses both the natural and the supernatural to bless and provide. And so he, for many of you, um, we experience God providing all the time in the natural way. So a few months ago, I got to work and I realized I had forgotten my lunch. It was a bad day again, and I, my husband and I were a little short on spending money, so I knew I didn't want to go out to eat, and I was just frustrated that I forgot it in the first place, debated, do I need to go back and get it? But as I walked up the steps, I just prayed, God, it would be really nice if someone just bought my lunch today. Amen. That was it. That was my prayer. And I go on with my day, and it's about 12 o'clock, and I had actually forgotten about lunch, which never happens. Never. I will always remember that it is lunchtime and I will always eat. But this day, it kind of slipped my mind and Pastor Jason pops his head in my door and he says he's going to McDonald's and asks if I want anything. And I just started laughing. He never usually offers. This was a rare thing. And I start laughing. He just looks at me and he's like, do you want lunch or not? And I, so then I explained and I said, well, I actually forgot my lunch today. And it's funny because I prayed that God would provide me and bet that someone would buy me lunch. And he just looks at me and he said, you're welcome. And so this was God providing to me in a natural way. He used an obedient person to not only bless me, but to actually remind me of his humor, but just also how much that he sees me on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that is a natural way that God can provide. But God can also provide through the supernatural those only God moments when we just have no other explanation for how on earth did this happen? Only God. So back to our story, Elijah is near the ravine with the ravens bringing him McDonald's sandwiches and he's living the good life. But in verse seven it says, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. God's provision for Elijah actually dried up. Just because God provides for you today doesn't mean that you won't lose your job tomorrow. Don't let anyone ever tell you that if you serve the Lord, things will never get dry. That you'll never lose your job. That your bank account won't run empty. That the things that you have will never break down. That you won't get sick or that even reading your Bible will never become boring. But verse 8 gives us a little hope and it says, The word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. When things dry up, when it seems that God is no longer providing, it may just simply mean that he's wanting to move you to a different resource. He has something else planned for you. This isn't always bad. Sometimes we get shaken up when one source runs dry, and it just means that God is wanting to move us to a different resource. The kicker is, though, that we have to actually be close enough to not only hear God speak, but to trust him, even when it seems crazy. So God asked Elijah to go to Zarephath to find this new resource. 
Now, I didn't know this because I'm some like, great historical and geographical genius, but again, I learned from Tony Evans that Zarephath was the epicenter for Baal worship. That just like we have a Bible Belt in the U.S., Zarephath was in the middle of the Baal Belt. So why would God, once again a loving God, choose to send someone he loved so much and was so close to him to such a terrible place? Why would a loving God do such a thing? But God will often test our faith by sending us to places that we don't really want to go. Because it doesn't make sense, we have to trust God. And that is why he will send us to uncomfortable places. Do you know how many people on this past mission trip to Peru didn't actually want to go? Actually, quite a few of them. You can go ask them about it. Yet they felt a calling. Something in them just felt like they were supposed to go. And so they obeyed. And while it was uncomfortable, it was full of unknown, they chose obedience. And God revealed things and he did things there to these people and around these people that they would have never experienced had they stayed in Clear Lake. God needed them to get up and go to a different place to receive what he had for them. So Elijah goes to a place that he probably doesn't want to go to. It's about 100 miles from the ravine that he's in. And it's not going to be an easy journey, whether it was on foot or on a donkey. But we learn that God's provision and the promises that he will take us to, that road to those promises and provision is not always easy. But Elijah begins that 100-mile trek, and God tells him that there will be a widow there who will supply him with food. And when he arrives, he sees a widow, and he asks for some water. And she leaves immediately to go get some. And while she's walking away, it's almost as if Elijah's testing her, and he says, oh, could you also bring me some bread? And this is when things get hard for her. She tells him that she doesn't have any bread. She only has a handful of flour and a jar of a little bit of olive oil in a jug. She told him, I'm actually here gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and then die. Now, whether Elijah was actually purposely challenging her or not, he is asking this woman to act in faith. She literally only has enough for one last meal before she and her son are left starving. That's it. There is no more after that. She can't see how God is actually going to provide, and therefore, that's why she says, this is my last meal before I die. But Elijah tells her to go home and to make a small loaf of bread for him and to bring it to him. And then she can go home and make a loaf of bread for her and her son. And he gives her a word from God. He said, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. Now her faith is really being challenged. She has a decision to make. Is she going to live on what she can physically see in her hand, or is she going to choose faith? Does she live on what she has, or does she choose God's provision? She decided to choose faith. She decided to align herself with God and his plan, and therefore she got a front row seat to see how God provides for his people. And for those of us that call ourselves Christians who put our faith in Jesus, God loves to provide for you. He delights in you. It brings him joy to provide for you. 
And it says, the widow went away and did as Elijah asked, and there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. There was never an abundance, but they never went without. And it reminds me of how God's supply is kind of always like that. We always have what we need for the day. We may not have an abundance of things, but we have what we need because we have God. That is what God promised was more of himself. And this story of faith is so unique that if we jump ahead clear into the New Testament, into Luke chapter 4, verse 24, it's so important that Jesus himself is talking about it. He's in Nazareth, he's in his hometown, and he's speaking to the people there. He just got done telling them that he was actually the Messiah that the Old Testament writers were writing about. Now, if you can imagine, just put yourself in the people of Nazareth's shoes for a minute. Can you imagine if someone got up here on this stage that was from Clear Lake and said that they were the second coming of Jesus? Now, they're from Clear Lake, we've grown up, we know them, and they say, I'm the second coming of Jesus. We would probably think that they were crazy. We'd be like, no, no, I went to kindergarten with you. There's, there's no way. You are not the second coming of Jesus. Well, that's what the people of Nazareth were doing. But Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Jesus accuses them of rejecting him. They did not believe who he said he was. He goes on to say that, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all of the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now Jesus says that there were many widows in Israel, but only one had faith. There was only one unique person willing to trust God when it seemed silly. Not even silly, it was life or death. So why would Jesus even tell this story? Out of all the stories of the Old Testament, like why this one? Well, he was comparing the people of Nazareth to the people of Zarephath. Jesus is telling him that they are no better than the infamously corrupted people of Zarephath, who were the Baal worshipers. That they too were worshiping false gods and that they can't even recognize the one true God in front of them. The widow was the only one to act in faith. So my question to you today is, are you going to be that unique person that trusts God? In a park filled with people, are you going to be that one rare person that chooses to live off of what you can physically see? Or are you going to be the person that chooses to let God provide in his way? Because statistically, only a few of you are actually going to take that challenge. The rest of us are just going to go home. So who among you is so sick of life disappointing you because you've placed your faith in the wrong resources instead of the one true source? Stephen Furtick once said, life is the process of letting God teach you that he is the one who feeds you. In Matthew, as Rachel read to us, it says, but seek first his kingdom and in his righteousness, all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God knows what you need, but you know who else does? Satan. And he tries his hardest to keep you blind to your one true source. He does all he can to make you believe that it is your resources that are the ones that provide for you. 
And wealth is actually the biggest disguiser of our resources. Some of you have everything that you could ever want and then some. That's actually a tactic of Satan. When you feel secure in the things that you have, the wealth you have built, why would you need God? Why trust in God when everything that you have done for yourself has led you to this cushy life? Some of you don't think you need God's provision because you already have a great marriage, a great job, and amazing kids. But what would happen if all of those things suddenly disappeared? Did you know, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, one in five U.S. adults has a mental illness, anxiety and stress being the largest described. Satan gets us to worry and stress about life, and in turn, we put our faith in resources that is actually coming from Satan, not in God as our one true source. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God will use resources to provide, but we had better know that it is God providing, not our resource. And we have so many resources in America. We live in a land flowing with milk and honey, and yet so many of us wander around like we're in a desert because we've placed our faith in other things apart from God. We then become idolaters. We are idol worshipers when we worship things that are not God. So just know if God looks at your life and he sees idolatry, you can expect a spiritual famine. But remember to those in Jesus, this famine can actually be God's kindness because it's pointing us back to him as the source of our provision. When my husband and I struggled with infertility for three years, it wasn't necessarily that, I don't know, maybe it was because of a sin, but in those three years, it drew me pretty close to God. Even when I felt like, God, do you even see me? Do you even care? The amount of things that I learned and the amount of trust that I had to place on him was much more than I have ever needed God before in my life. And I look back at that time and I am so thankful that I had it. Because without what I have learned to trust God that much, I don't know. And so those times in our life when we feel we are in a famine, God is using that. He will use it to bless and to provide. So I'm not saying that if your life currently sucks that it's because of your sin. You could lose everything through life at no fault of your own, but that doesn't mean that God isn't providing or that he's not going to provide. God chooses to bless his people and provide how he sees fit. People do die, people do get sick, and people do actually go hungry. And sometimes our provision doesn't come until we're in heaven. But I want to ask, if your faith is not in Jesus, where then is your hope? Does the hope that you have in your other source satisfy even unto death? Be that person in a land that's so corrupt that you can open your eyes to see the miracles around you. Act on faith and watch how God provides. Who is your source? Are you putting your trust in yourself as your main resource? Or something else to provide for you? Don't be a Solomon that, hey, if it happened to Solomon, who is described as the wisest man in the Bible, if it can happen to him, it can happen to us. 
Don't be like him to turn away from God and look to other things that will never, ever satisfy. Let's learn to be like Elijah, who had a simple faith, who had a simple trust and a simple obedience and an understanding that God will use his resources to provide for us. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as I close out in prayer. God, we confess that we can be impatient and we ask for your forgiveness. We know deep down that you provide our every need, and yet we take our eyes off of you and we take matters into our own hands, and it leaves us feeling as though we lack. May we trust and rely on you to provide instead of ourselves or to other things. God, when your provision dries up, increase our gratitude for what we have. Help us to see the miracles in what you have given rather than complain about what you have withheld. Help us to look and to listen for your leading, for you are our source. You will lead us to the next resource. Jesus, you taught to ask us for what we need. Some of us need work, and we ask that you will provide. Some of us are sick, and we ask for your healing. Some of us are actually hungry, and we cry to you, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We pray for deliverance from stress and anxiety. Help us to trust you and to seek your kingdom first knowing that you, God, will give us what we need. We thank you for providing your son, Jesus, to restore us into a right relationship with you. And we ask that Jesus be the king of our lives, not the gods that we substitute, not the counterfeit gods that we make up. Help us to understand that we don't have to fight for provision. It is freely ours through faith in you. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship.